Hello and welcome to Map Bites, episode 144. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, we're navigating the M1 and going back to the future, Google style. But first, feedback from last week. Following my piece on last week's show about SQL Pro, SQL Ace and Table Plus, we received an email from listener Mark who asked about the pronunciation of said apps. Is it SQL or is it SQL? For the app names, I don't think there's any doubt that it's SQL Pro and SQL Ace. After all, that's how it's written. S-E-Q-U-E-L. But what about those server-based databases? Is it MySQL or MySQL? Is it SQL Server or SQL Server? And what about the query language itself? SQL or SQL? According to LearnSQL.com, or is that LearnSQL.com, on the internet there are many battles about how it should be pronounced. Some people are for SQL, some are for SQL, and still others make up their own pronunciations. The standard says that SQL is the appropriate way of saying it. However, many English-speaking database professionals still use the non-standard SQL. So, who's the winner? SQL gets most votes, but Donald Chamberlain says SQL, and he gets an extra vote because he's the co-developer of the language. Also note that implementations may have their own preferences. The official way to pronounce MySQL is MySQL, not MySQL, but some don't mind if you pronounce it as MySQL, or in some other localised way. Microsoft SQL Server is also often pronounced as SQL Server. In fact, Bill Gates uses it on his SQL Server Miller Lite commercial. So there you have it, Mark. No right answer. That actually reminds me of a quote that I see every now and then online. Uh, It goes something like, never make fun of anyone if they mispronounce a word. It means they learnt it by reading. There are so many comments on the page hosting that quote, relaying stories from school days where people still recall how humiliated they were made to feel when they mispronounced something. And I had an English teacher. She was evil. She took great delight in making you feel stupid at the most innocuous mistake. And we're talking at primary school. While searching for the source of that quote, I found another rabbit hole to play with as well. A question and answer site. Question. Is it rude to correct someone when they mispronounce a word? Answer. In short, yes, it's rude. It's pretentious condescending behaviour to correct someone's spoken English unless they actually ask you to. So there you have it. Say it any way you like. We all know what you mean and I, for one, won't be judging you. Also an update from last week. Remember when I speculated that making a grand announcement, like the OnlyFans thing, could possibly be a way to gain massive free publicity? I seem to recall MacBite Siri accused me of promoting a conspiracy theory. Guess what? They've U-turned! A widely reported U-turn as well. The coverage of which doesn't really provide much rationale for said U-turn. So it's as you were in the entertainment of an adult nature thing, with the blessing of the big banks, it seems. And only the first of several U-turns this week. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that the NatWest Bank app now allows you to authorise transactions using facial recognition, with voice recognition also coming soon. At the time, I'd not set it up, so I decided, in the name of completeness, that I'd do it yesterday. It was actually very simple. Just tap the biometric approval button and tap next, and then hold the phone up to my face. The instructions said, make sure there's nothing obscuring your face like sunglasses or hair. I was ready to tap the take photo button, and then up popped a message telling me to get closer. Eventually, having also removed my glasses, I was close enough to be able to take the photo. And that was it. Though I was disappointed that when I transferred some money from one account to another, I wasn't actually asked to authenticate. Oh well, maybe I'll just have to splash the cash on an iPad or something, because I'm sure an Apple transaction will fire off an authentication request. Another iCloud classic coming up 
I'm in the process of creating a video based course. It's a beginner's guide to bar charts and column charts aimed at HR professionals, but would actually be useful for anyone just starting out on their Excel charting journey. I was doing an inventory of the assets that I had, and you asked me if my slides were in PowerPoint or Keynote. No idea, I replied. I can't remember. I actually started putting this course together during our June holiday, but since returning back to work, lack of time has meant that it hasn't been touched since. A search of the Dropbox folder containing all the other assets for the course proved fruitless, so I employed a different tactic. I opened Keynote and looked at the recently opened file list. The file wasn't listed there. I closed Keynote and opened PowerPoint on my Windows VM and looked at the recently opened file list not listed there either. So I opened PowerPoint on the Mac and there it was with a path of Macintosh HD, Users, Mike T, iCloud Archive. Remember the iCloud Archive folder that we talked about? It gets created when you log out of iCloud. Now within that folder, there was a folder called dot trash and within that was a folder called DT and a date. Now, I got that naming convention idea from you. When you have a load of rubbish on your desktop that needs sorting out, create a folder called DT, as in desktop, plus the date. Shove it in there and stick it in a to be sorted folder in Dropbox. Of course, Finder makes displaying folders whose name begins with a dot a trickier business than it needs to be. This was a job for Pathfinder. So I ran Pathfinder. I enabled the show of invisible files with a single click and navigated to the now visible folder. I found the file and dragged it to the assets folder within my course folder. Let that be a lesson to you not to store files on your desktop or anywhere else near iCloud. Probably the biggest news from the last week is the incoming changes expected to the App Store. Not Apple's idea. <laughs> Need I say that? It's to put an end to a class action lawsuit brought against Apple by developers in the US. So what's changing? Hmm. Let me give you a quote. Apple will let developers use communication methods like email to tell customers about payment methods available outside the App Store. Hmm. That seems very precise, doesn't it? Does that mean no information about alternatives actually inside the app? There's also a $100 million fund and Apple will be releasing annual transparency reports on the app review process. <gasps> I bet that one hurt, Timmy. Apple being transparent about anything will be a first. And the collective output from the comms department this week regarding all this? Complete silence. Anyway, the details. To establish a settlement, Apple and the developers involved in the lawsuit have come to an agreement that identifies seven key priorities shared by Apple and small developers. It sounds like the seven tent poles. Well, here we go. Earnings and commission. Apple will maintain the App Store small business program as it is right now for the next three years. Devs earning revenue less than a million a year will pay 15% commission and devs earning revenue over a million a year will pay 30%. Tentpole 2. Search visibility. Apple are going to maintain the current App Store search system for at least three years. And the App Store search results will continue to be based on objective characteristics. Mm. Downloads, star ratings, text relevance and user behaviour signals. What are user behaviour signals? I haven't got a clue. If you know, let me know. Tentpole 3, communications. Apple will allow developers to use communications like email to share information about payment methods available outside of the iOS apps. Developers will not pay Apple a commission on the purchases taking place outside of the app. Users must consent to the communication and be able to opt out at any point. I'd be interested to see how this one impacts the current policy of being allowed to install an App Store purchase on multiple devices. Because clearly in the minds of the devs, this isn't a good thing. It impacts their revenue. Hence, activated apps. TechSmith in Camtasia and Telestream in ScreenFlow encourage you to log in or register their apps. Now, I never do from the App Store. I just see that as a way to track 
the number of times I've installed that app. And that ability to install on multiple computers without the attendant activation and deactivation dance is important to me. So I, I would like information on what's going to happen to that. But Tendpole 4, price points. Apple will expand the number of price points available to developers for subscriptions, in-app purchases and paid apps. Currently, there are fewer than 100. Moving forward, possibly more than 500. Really? Good grief. Tentpole 5, the app review process. Apple will maintain the option for developers to appeal the rejection of an app based on perceived unfair treatment. Apple will add content to the app review website to help developers better understand the appeals process. <laughs> that should have been there years ago, just saying. Tentpole 6, transparency. Apple will create an annual transparency report based on App Store data to provide meaningful statistics about the app review process. The number of apps rejected for different reasons, the number of customer and developer accounts deactivated, and objective data regarding search queries and results. Also, the number of apps removed from the App Store. As I said, it's got to hurt that one. Tentpole 7, the Small Developer Assistance Fund. This is the $100 million Apple are paying to developers to settle a lawsuit. It's been distributed as part of the Small Developer Assistance Fund. Developers are going to be able to claim between $250,000 and $30,000 based on their historic App Store participation. Hmm, seems to be window dressing. The least they can do to make it go away. With my cynical head on, it's a charm offensive. With parallels to the Glazers at our favourite football club, they're trying to get away with as little as possible. Now the peasants are revolting, you mean? Yes. I can't see how 500 price points benefit the customers here. I feel the group of people being ignored by both sides in this are the customers. You know, those of us actually buying the apps. If you've ever actually checked out the in-app purchases information, before downloading an app. It's farcical. I've seen 10 to 20 in-app purchases listed with the same title, no details and different price points. The amount of text that they can show is limited. So maybe that's why it looks like it's the same name. But how about bringing some clarity to that, Apple? Apple can try backpedaling all they like, but the end is nigh for their previously walled garden monopoly because just today South Korea passed an antitrust law meaning that Apple and Google will have to permit the use of third-party payment platforms in their app stores. So it's going to be interesting to see where this one heads. And following on from all that, ye gods, this rampant Apple employees thing is moving fast. It really feels like the wheels are coming off the way Apple have chosen to do business until now. It started with a single person complaining about the way they were treated, and now it spiralled into the Apple II movement. That's a hashtag, Apple II. I've read many of the stories shared, and they veer between behaviour that has no place in it, any workplace to the absolutely horrific. And I did think better of Apple. They are forever wrapping themselves in the flag of some cause or another. But it seems they need to get their own house in order first. Perception's everything, and right now, Apple are not looking good. The extent to which any of what has been said is true is actually secondary to how Apple's response to it makes them appear on the back foot and lacking an understanding of where we're at. One of the pieces I read was about how Apple employees are instructed to link their personal Apple IDs to their corporate accounts during onboarding. Hmm, Apple ID linking. I know, who knew that was a thing? The problem is Apple potentially then have access to all your private data. And that situation is made even worse when you come to leave. Because the rule is you're not allowed to wipe any devices you may have used while you were at Apple. This particular article was a revealing behind-the-scenes piece well worth a read. I'll put the link in the show notes. So many horror stories from so many people. And Apple's response? Nothing. Complete silence from the Apple spokespeople. Remind me again what they're actually paid for. Someone at Apple needs to get a grip on this and show some leadership. Leadership isn't about how many millions you've gouged out of customers this week. It's about showing some integrity and doing what's right ensuring that your staff feel safe and heard is the most basic level of that. 
So come on, Apple, do something. Now, is this next one? Ooh, or ah! It's the latest patent filed by Apple, and it appears to be for a keyboard mouse onesie. You're wondering. <laughs> so was I. It's a mouse that lives inside a keyboard. Oh, it's a mouse house. Seriously, I am struggling to understand this one. From the diagram, it looks like a key lifts out and turns into a mouse. All Q-like from James Bond. But surely that mouse would be tiny. If it's the size of a key, it would be unusable. All the comments said was that at least the inelegantly placed charging port on the current Magic Mouse would be a thing of the past. But I'm more concerned about actually being able to use it than how it charges. Maybe it's Apple's master plan to get rid of the mouse completely. Just keep making it smaller until you hardly notice it's actually gone. It reminds me of those laptops back in the 90s with the massive ball in the middle of the keyboard that acted as a mouse, just nowhere near as big. Last year, when Apple announced the move away from Intel chips and said that all future Macs would be based on the ARM M1 processor, the first question on many people's minds was, being non-Intel based, would Windows and Windows based apps run on them? As someone who makes a living from Windows based software and who uses Windows on his Mac every day, I had the same question. If the answer turned out to be no, then I'd have to rethink my entire hardware purchasing strategy, turning my back on 15 years of being a Mac user and return 100% to the dark side. Last December, we bought two new Intel iMacs. Although out of Apple Care, there was nothing wrong with the mid-2017 iMacs that we had. But our logic was that should it not be possible to run Windows on an M1-based Mac, by buying them at that time, we'd be giving ourselves, or me in particular, as much time as possible to be able to run Windows virtualized on a Mac. Version 17 of Parallels was released and much was made of the ability to run Windows virtualized on Apple Silicon. Now this week, I came across an article in one of my news feeds from someone who tested running Windows on an M1-based Mac using this recently released version 17 of Parallels. You and I have Parallels 17 installed, but of course, our Macs are Intel-based, not M1-based, so I was interested in his findings. Especially as last year, Parallels were saying that it wouldn't be possible to run Windows on a non-Intel Mac, and now, with version 17, one of the selling points is that you can. So, can you or can't you? The short headline-grabbing answer is yes, you can run Windows and Windows-based applications on an M1 Mac using Parallels version 17. But, as we predicted, it's not as simple as that. Let's be 100% clear here. You can't run the standard version of Windows 10 virtualized via Parallels. You need a completely different version of Windows. Windows for ARM, which is only available if you sign up to the Windows Insider Preview program, which is free to join. Once the guy doing the testing had downloaded the 9.7 gig installation file, he installed it inside Parallels and was happy to report that it looked and worked exactly like Windows 10. But as he said, remember the Surface RT? Microsoft sold those devices back in 2012. They looked and felt just like Windows, but they wouldn't run any traditional Windows software. They would only run apps that were one from the Windows Store and two specifically made for ARM. Anyway, back to the testing. He picked three apps that he knew for certain were Intel based and hadn't been modified for the Windows Store or for ARM based devices. One of these apps being a 2005 copy of Palm Desktop. Again, to quote from the article, he said, being able to run an ancient 2005 Intel-based Windows application for an obsolete device in an ARM version of Windows on an Apple Silicon-based Mac in 2021 was quite exciting. So, in summary, whilst you can run Intel-based Windows applications on your M1 Mac right now, don't rely on being able to do it forever. I'm also concerned about how well, if at all, Power BI and some of the Excel add-ins that I use will run under ARM. 
Even on a clean and perfect install of Intel-based Windows, these apps can stubbornly refuse to function correctly. It's unlikely that Microsoft will release Windows on ARM as a retail product anytime soon, although one possibility is that Parallels may license Windows for ARM and sell it as an add-on to Parallels Desktop. But that's just a possibility. So it looks like I need to prepare to move back to the dark side. If you only watch one video this week, make it the Google parody of a Johnny Ive video. It's advertising the new Google Pixel 5a, elegantly named. It's done so well, you'll be able to close your eyes and hear Johnny. Even more interestingly, actually, the video is drawing attention to a new feature of the Google Pixel 5a. It's an innovative and most useful feature. It's genius. I don't know why more devices don't have this feature. Brace yourselves. A 3.5mm audio jack. Mmm, seriously. <laughs> Maybe Apple will be able to take note of how useful this could potentially be. They might add one to the iPhone 13. Mmm, there I go again living in cloud cuckoo land. Still, the video is worth a watch. Don't miss it. Oh, in a piece entitled Be Still My Beating Heart, Windows 11 now has a firm release date of the 5th of October 2021. Will I upgrade? Well, since I run Windows in a VM, a nice little locked box, I can simply make a copy of the VM and play to my heart's content. Do I need to upgrade? Well, taking the if it isn't broken approach, probably not. But since it's hard to go wrong in a VM, I think I will, just for the giggles. I'll probably install it as well, same as you in a VM. That way, I don't have to break my surface. But shouldn't Biggles Inc. be more of a priority? Oh, don't remind me. I know I should Biggles before the full Monty arrives, but I really can't face it. You know, the if it isn't broken principle at play again. You know when you're thinking about a story to cover on MacBytes? Well, this one was supposed to be a really short piece about Camtasia. We've had an upgrade at work. We now have Camtasia 2021 on our Windows laptops, which is great because that's what I've got on my Mac. A couple of years ago, in MacBytes episode 120, I talked about my experiences of using Camtasia in a cross-platform world. At the time, I was using Camtasia 8 at work and I was bemoaning the fact that it wasn't compatible with the version that I had installed on my Mac. Why that was an issue was because I had to do the screen recording on my work laptop, but I preferred to do the editing on my 27-inch Retina iMac. So now I have the same version on my work laptops and my iMacs, it means that I should be able to record my videos using Camtasia for Windows and edit them on the Mac without all the kerfuffle that I had before. The crux of this story was actually going to be about how slow Camtasia ran on my work laptop. I opened a recording in the Camtasia editor on my work laptop. It was only a short five minute thing and it took about 90 seconds before I could actually do anything with it. And if I moved an object along the timeline, I then had to wait a further 30 seconds for the screen to update and everything to settle down before I could then continue. Well, it turns out that TechSmith have seriously upped the requirements for 2021. The minimum spec needed to run the app is a 6th Gen i3 with 8GB of memory. The recommended spec is a 10th Gen i5 with 16GB of memory. And my laptop has a 6th Gen i5 processor chip with 8GB memory. No wonder it runs slowly. It barely hits the minimum spec. So I open the same file on my iMac with an i9 processor and 128 gig of memory and it took about 5 seconds and that's why I edit on the Mac. As many of our stories on MacBytes do, this one has turned into something else. Yes, the speed is still an issue, but not the only issue, as I'm about to explain. When you record your screen using Camtasia, you end up with a T-Rec file. This file contains a screen recording and the audio, assuming that you chose to record the audio. And the good thing is that T-Rex are cross-platform. In other words, T-Rex created on Windows can be edited with Camtasia for the Mac, and T-Rex created on the Mac can be edited with Camtasia for Windows. So my plan was to take the Windows-generated T-Rex over to the Mac and edit it, cut out the mistakes, add in the annotations, etc., and generate an MP4. 
The MP4 would then be sent back to my work laptop and uploaded to our video hosting system. Well, that was my plan until I realized that I couldn't create a T-Rec in Camtasia for Windows. Now, you might wonder how that's possible, given the T-Rec is the recording itself. Well, in the Camtasia preferences, there's an after recording setting that allows you to choose what to do when you click stop. You have two choices. You can save the T-Rec by being prompted for a file name and location, or you can open the T-Rec directly in the editor. If you choose to save, you have to then go and find the T-Rec file in your operating systems file manager, i.e. Explorer or Finder, and double click it to open it in the editor. Or in my case, drag it to a cloud folder so I can transfer it to the Mac. If you choose to open the editor, the T-Rec should get saved into Camtasia's temporary recordings folder before then being automatically opened in the editor. But that doesn't always happen. And even when it does, if the editor crashes, it has been known for the T-Rec file to disappear completely. Bit like your slides. So I took your Sage advice and set my Macs up the same way that you've got yours set up. So that when I click stop record, I'm prompted for a file name. At that point, I know the T-Rec file is safe. So I thought I'd do the same on my Windows laptop. I opened the preferences or options as it's called in Camtasia for Windows and there was no after recording setting. So I did the Googles and I found a long thread on the Camtasia community support forum. The too long didn't read version is that the recorder has been rewritten from scratch and some features are missing, but they will be put back at a later date in massive air quotes. Not another of those. It started with Final Cut Pro, then there's iWork, still waiting for Mail Merge to be added back eight years on. It's like a new development ideology. Strip out as much as you can get away with and then make it subscription. I hear you. People were not happy with TechSmith, to say the least. There's a link in the show notes if you're interested in reading all the comments. So right now, when I click stop recording, it opens the Camtasia editor, creates a new project and loads the T-Rec file into the project. Think of the project as a container. As well as the T-Rec, a project stores things like annotations, text and images. I'll just have to cross my fingers that if the editor does crash, the T-Rec isn't lost forever. But that wasn't the only problem. Something that several of us in the training team noticed, which was also mentioned in the forum thread, was that the new recorder doesn't display a countdown. After you click start record, you see a 321 countdown appear on screen. There's a checkbox in the Camtasia preferences, which enables you to disable the feature. Not that I advise you to do so, as it's actually very useful. It gives you three seconds to prepare yourself before you start speaking into the microphone and start recording the movie. I checked the preferences and the option to enable and disable the on-screen countdown wasn't there. Apparently, another missing feature that will be added back in the coming months. The final annoyance relates to the recording panel. When you click Create New Recording, a small floating panel appears on screen. It contains options for selecting what to record. You can choose to record an entire screen or a region of the screen. If you have more than one screen, you can choose which screen to record. You can choose to include the output from a webcam in the recording. You can choose whether to record the system audio and you can select whether to record audio from a microphone. It also has a red start recording button on it, the one that should start the countdown. When you click the start recording button, the panel should minimise itself. On the Mac, it does. Ah, no. Sometimes on the Mac it does. Camtasia 2019, it did what we expected. Clicking record started the recording and hit the recorder, irrespective of which screen it was on when you press record. Then came Camtasia 2020, what I like to call the what were they thinking version. Clicking record started the recording and hit the recorder, but only if the recorder was on the screen being recorded. Clicking record started the recording and left the recorder on the screen if it was on any other screen than the one being recorded, which wouldn't in itself have been too much of a nightmare if it didn't add a green border around the screen that was being recorded. Yes, that's the what were they thinking bit, because obviously it came through on the recording. 
Which brings us neatly up to Camtasia 2021, where in Facebook language, it's complicated. Clicking record starts the recording and hides the recorder only if it's on the screen being recorded. But clicking record starts the recording and leaves the recorder on the screen if it's on any screen other than the one being recorded. So, so far, same as Camtasia 2020. The difference is it no longer displays the green border on any of the screens. Let's call that progress. But why leave the recorder on the screen at all in these circumstances? And the rationale seems to be to allow you to monitor what's being recorded on the webcam or the external camera. And while this does actually work, one, it's the size of a postage stamp. Two, the preview doesn't include the screen recording. And three, the preview doesn't include a visualisation of the audio either. So all you get is a frozen image of both the screen recording and the audio. Maybe they'll add something more useful in an upcoming release. On Windows, the recording panel remains on screen, displaying a counter that shows how many minutes and seconds you've been recording, and a pause button and a stop button. Apart from the microphone level indicator, there's no other monitoring tools on this panel. There's also a thin dotted green border around the edge of the screen being recorded, although this doesn't appear on the recording itself. To hide the panel so it doesn't appear in the recording, you'll either need to manually minimise it or drag it onto another screen, assuming you've got more than one screen. But of course, at this point, you're already recording, which means that the manual minimising or dragging out of the way is on the recording. So no matter how perfect your recording turns out to be, you'll have to edit out the beginning. Unless you're Manchester United, of course. All this can be avoided by dragging the panel to the screen that won't be recorded, again assuming that you have more than one screen, before you click Start Record. As long as you remember to do so, of course, because it's too late once you've hit record. I guess they've left it so it doesn't auto-minimise, so that the stop button is visible. There used to be a shortcut key, it was F10, to stop the recording, but this no longer works. On the forum, the suggested workaround for both the missing countdown and the non-hiding recording panel is to open up File Explorer, go to C colon Program Files TechSmith Camtasia 2021 folder and run the file LegacyCamRecorder.exe. As I said, TechSmith have rebuilt the recorder, but it seems that they had the foresight to include the old recorder as part of the installation. So you could actually get some work done, you mean? Well, it wouldn't be fair to leave the story there. To their credit, TechSmith have provided several updates. Unfortunately, like many corporates, we can't just install those updates. We have to get an IT support person with an admin account to do it for us. But looking at the version history, one of the updates fixes the missing countdown issue. Another one fixes the missing Save the T-Rec option, and a third update provides improved recorder UI during recordings. Whether that means automatically minimise it, it doesn't say. But they have added back the F10 shortcut key to stop the recording. Those bugs, if you want to call them that, were fixed within four weeks of 2021 being released. Would it not have been better to delay releasing it for a month than to be faced with all the negative publicity that those missing features generated? Not when it means they can ride in on their white chargers and fix them all and claim to be all round good eggs. Do you want to know the real reason they couldn't delay it a month? It's because Camtasia is sold with a maintenance agreement and that maintenance agreement guarantees you the next version at no extra cost. But those 12-month contracts would potentially have expired if they'd waited even a few days beyond the expected release date. Essential updates within weeks of a big release is also a great driver to extend your maintenance contract too. Handy that. If you recall, I introduced you to the joys of Vivaldi last week. So here with part two of our Vivaldi deep dive. And we're starting with the joys of onboarding. The first rite of passage with Vivaldi is an official onboarding and there's a lot of it. You actually need to know a little bit about what Vivaldi offers in order to get the best out of the onboarding process. So Vivaldi offers three distinct versions of the Vivaldi experience. It calls these essentials, classic and fully loaded. In answer to the question, how much Vivaldi do you want? You have those three options, essential, classic or fully loaded. 
The Essentials, as the name implies, is the minimum that you would need to get going with Vivaldi as a browser. I wouldn't choose this option, though, even if you're just starting out. It doesn't include some of the very features that make Vivaldi so great. You get add and track protection and translations are included, but that is really it. Nothing else at all. Classic gives you all that's in Essentials, together with some flagship features of Vivaldi. So you still get ad and tracker protection and translations, but additionally included, you get web panels, the status bar, and fast forward and rewind options. Fully loaded is everything that's in Classic, together with mail, calendar and feeds. So which one's right for you? Well, obviously, I went for fully loaded, but more on that decision later. Unless you have a specific need for the additional features, so the mail, the contacts, calendar and RSS, to be honest, Classic is just fine. In the next step, it's all about importing. And there are extensive import options available during this onboarding process. But you can import data after this initial onboarding process and leaving it until then means you actually have more nuanced options at the point of import. So I'd skip it during onboarding and come back to it later. Step three is tracker and ad blocking. And you have three options, no blocking, block trackers or block trackers and ads. I go for block trackers because I've got a dedicated ad blocking solution that I have installed as an extension. Then there's themes. Vivaldi ships with eight themes and an extra one that's used when opening links in private mode. The default theme is called Vivaldi. It's a bright red theme and it's just as in your face as it sounds. There's also a dark theme and then the others are human, hot pink. No, not any time soon is that going to be my default. There's another one called Subtle, Blueprint, Beach and Purple Rain. Best advice if you're looking for something other than one of the defaults is to just leave it set to Vivaldi here and again tweak it later. The next step in onboarding is the position of your tabs. Vivaldi lets you place the tabs hosting your pages in one of four locations. Obviously, the top is the default, but there's also on the bottom, the left hand side or the right hand side. Now, until I set up my current iMac, I had always had the tabs at the top. But I have several pinned tabs. So the pin tabs are shrunk to the size of their fav icon. And where I've got several tabs that use the same fav icon, it makes it so difficult to know which tab is which. Hence, I decided to try the tabs on the left, where I can actually see the title together with the fav icon. I actually didn't intend that I would stick with it. I thought I'd give it a go and I would hate it. But I love it. It's perfect for my use of it. Your mileage may vary, of course, but it might be worth a try. Then the, the last stage of onboarding is three things to try right away. Now, you'll only see this if you selected at least the classic level, because it's three features that are unique to Vivaldi. Notes, web panels and tab tiling. These are all great features that I'll talk about within this series. But right now, there's one perennial issue I face with setting up apps, especially ones that I'm new to, and there is an initial onboarding. If there is, that's great. But what if I want to tweak something that I set in the onboarding later? While there'll doubtless be a way to do it in the interface or the options of the app, I might not know where that is yet. But luckily, there is the option to re-onboard with Vivaldi. So fear not if you think you've set something wrong in the onboarding or you've just changed your mind. You can easily rerun the process at any time by visiting the URL Vivaldi colon slash slash welcome. And it takes you through the entire process again, but it does remember what you configured last time. So you only have to tweak the actual things that you want changing and not go through the whole process again. Now, once you've got your onboarding sorted out, it's time to explore. So let's start with tabs. You might think tabs aren't in any way exciting, but you would be so wrong. Deciding where you want your tabs, the top, bottom, left, right, is only the beginning of the tab adventure in Vivaldi. As I mentioned, I have pinned tabs. These are for pages that I have open virtually all the time. 
And pinning them forces to the top of the tab bar, in my case, because my tab bar is on the left. If your tabs are at the top, then the pin tabs are placed to the left hand edge of that. They are only represented by the fav icon. And there's an option in the Vivaldi preferences that I enable to prevent pin tabs from being closed without being unpinned first. It just means that those tabs that are my preferred tabs to be open, I would actually have to go out of my way to close them rather than inadvertently closing them. Then there's tab stacking. Tab stacking allows you to organise your tabs into meaningful groups, either automatically by domain or manually in whatever way makes sense to you. The tab stacks can be edited at any time and given titles for ease of use. One of the most useful options with tabs is the ability to select one or more tabs in a Vivaldi window and send them to a new window. And I do this frequently. Open as many tabs as my work needs and then transfer the pertinent ones to a new window to focus only on what's bang on point. Now, it's so easy and useful to spawn multiple tabs that there is a danger that managing them all will become a productivity draining time sink. But that is where saved sessions comes in. Vivaldi allows you to save multiple tabs as a session that you can reload later. What sets that apart from just bookmarking them is a saved session can include tabs open in multiple windows. So more on that in a future session, but it's a really good feature. Then there's the address bar across the top. But how amazing can an address bar be? Well, it's certainly feature packed, but we'll start with the basics. There's a back button, standard navigation, and a forward button, again, standard navigation. But in addition to those two, you have rewind by visited domain and fast forward. And I must admit, I'd never seen those in any other browser, had no idea what they did. But rewind navigates you back in a single click to the first page of a website that you visited several pages within the site. So imagine that you go to my blog and from there you navigate to the about page and then back to the blog section and then back to several other sections and pages. And you want to get back to that first page. You just hit the rewind by visited domain and you get taken straight back to the first page that you visited. The fast forward does one of two things, depending on the site that you're visiting. It can jump you to the next page of, for example, a search engine that contains several pages of results. Alternatively, if you're visiting a site with endless scroll, so think Facebook or Twitter, it will navigate you downwards page by page. There is the standard home button and that loads a page set as your preferred home page in the preferences. Everything, of course, is customizable. Then there's the URL bar, the important bit. So the URL box displays the address of the currently displayed page, but in Vivaldi, it can do so much more. On the left of the URL, there's an option to control the content blocker on the current page. Depending on the website you're viewing, the URL box also acts as a host for accessing the reader view, the QR code generator, and the bookmarking options. Just to the right of the URL box, you'll find your extensions. Those extensions you choose to have displayed appear next to the right of the URL box. Additional extensions can be hidden underneath a disclosure triangle at the very end of the address bar. Now, I'm extremely minimal with my extensions. I actually only have one displaying. I only have a handful of extensions anyway these days. And part of the reason for that is that Vivaldi has so many more features built in than other browsers do. I just don't need the extensions to extend the functionality of the thing. At the bottom of the screen, you will find the status bar. And again, it's a fully loaded treasure trove of browser features. On a default install, the first option you'll find is break mode. Taking a break from intense concentration is a healthy approach to your personal workload. But knowing that and actually being able to take that break are two very different things. And this is where Vivaldi's break mode has you back. A single click on the icon and Vivaldi fades the content and pauses any media that might be playing, inviting you to focus elsewhere for a while. Next to that, you have the sync option. So the sync option synchronizes all the Vivaldi data across multiple devices. So you can feel at home whichever device you're using. 
You can either go for synchronising everything or there's checkboxes to enable or disable sync for each data type, meaning you can be as granular as you need with this feature. Needless to say, I sync everything. Then there's a feature that I absolutely adore. I use it all the time and it's the ability to capture a page. It's the current page or any part of the current page as an image. You can choose between saving as PNG and JPEG. And in addition to that, you can copy the capture to the clipboard or choose to create a new Vivaldi note with the image. You've probably got other apps to take screen caps, but in Vivaldi, when you choose to capture the page, you get the entire scrolling page with no other detritus on it whatsoever. I use that literally 10 times a week. The next option is page tiling, and that's nothing short of amazing. It's the ability to open a range of pages and view them all at the same time in a grid view. Now, it could be as simple as two pages side by side, or it could be multiple pages in a grid style collage view. It's just genius. I thought it was good having two windows side by side, but if you can imagine having a single window with multiple pages, it's so much easier. Then there is the page zoom, which is a slider to allow you to set a custom zoom level for the current page and reset that zoom level when required. Then there's the clock, another optional but seriously useful tool accessed via the Vivaldi status bar. It's loaded with functions, including countdown timers, alarms. It has presets. It even has a built-in Pomodoro timer. And the whole thing is completely configurable. I actually thought this was a bit of a gimmick when it was first added, but I am now a convert. It's even more useful in full screen mode. As I've reiterated throughout this, everything is configurable, and I don't just mean to a certain degree. I mean completely configurable. From hiding elements you don't use to tweaking the precise location of one button that you do use. The interface inside Vivaldi is uniquely yours. And next time, I'll be starting with web panels. Now, as I mentioned last week, I'm currently in the midst of a series dedicated to the Vivaldi browser. 30 Days to Becoming a Vivaldi Lover is happening on Twitter during Ship 30 for 30 and is coming to my blog later this week. So Ship 30 for 30 is a writing challenge, writing and publishing 30 essays in 30 days. I'm breaking all the rules by concentrating on one app for the duration. But last time I wrote one essay about Vivaldi and it was the one that got most views. So people are clearly interested in it. We're about halfway through, so you can catch up on Twitter. And as I say, I will be putting the longer posts up shortly on my blog. You should give Vivaldi a try, you said. Laugh of it was, I already had it installed on both of my iMacs, but I have no idea how that happened. It might as well have not been installed because I have no recollection of ever having even run it. Up to that point, Chrome was my primary browser. I used Safari as my secondary browser. I used it primarily for testing and then clearing the history cache. And I also occasionally used Firefox. Is it up to date, you asked? Me, keeping apps up to date. Standing joke here at MacBytes headquarters. So that was my first task, get it updated. Next job, bring my bookmarks in. And that's when the trouble began. There's a checkbox in the preferences and no matter how many times I tried to put a tick in it, the tick just wouldn't stick. So in the end, you sorted me out. Now I have all my bookmarks from Chrome in the bookmarks bar at the top of the Vivaldi screen. I also discovered, well, was told about by you, the downloads panel. In Chrome, I was used to seeing the downloads appearing in the bar at the bottom of the screen. But now I can access the downloads from the panel on the right hand side. And that makes me a very happy bunny. But I still have a long way to go with the configuration. At the moment, it's just a browser. But configured to within an inch of its life like yours, I know it could be so much more. I'll get to that after I stop typing CHR into Alfred and start typing VIV instead. I can help you there. Or to be more accurate, Alfred can help you there. All you need to do is to create an Alfred workflow that runs when you type a generic word. So in this case, browser. You only actually need two blocks. One is the trigger, which would be a keyword. And as I've said, in this case, browser should be generic. The other block is the launch files or apps block. 
Choose Vivaldi as the application and that's it. It's really simple. Activate Alfred and type browser. Now, to be honest, it's likely that something else is going to be at the top of the list initially. In my case, the Brave browser and Browser Ninja were initially higher than the new workflow. But Alfred adapts and will learn. And within a few uses, your new workflow will be the default action for typing the word browser. And the beauty of that is if you change your mind and switch to another browser, you only need to change the Alfred workflow to activate the new browser and your muscle memory can continue as normal. As I think I mentioned, I expected it to take you much longer to even consider the switch. Time and dynamite, as I recall. So I'm very impressed to see you giving it a go so soon. It's MacBytes After Hours again on Friday night, and we have some subtle but really useful updates to a couple of apps to share with you. We're wrapping up the icon kit creation in Affinity Designer and heading back to Scrivener for the next part of our Mastering Scrivener series. And I'm suspecting you may have something Excel related for us all. Well, there's some new Lambda functions out in Excel, so I thought I would take a look at a couple of those. So do join us 9pm UK time on Friday. But that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. So please send your questions, comments and queries by email to the crew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form on the website. We also have a very active Slack chat room that's open 24-7. Simply go to macbytes.co.uk slash Slack and join the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So, until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye, and see you next time. What are you watching? The Johnny I parody video from Google. I saw that earlier. It captured Johnny perfectly. I thought it was him for a moment. Me too. Steady on. What did I say? You said me too. Given the Apple news this week, you could be recycled for less. Good catch. It won't happen again. So are you thinking of having the Google Circle retrofitted? No, I don't think I need radical surgery like that. I have a dongle and she knows what to do with it. Wise decision, especially in light of the new mouse thing. The tiny keyboard dwelling mouse, you mean? That's the one. What does that have to do with me having a Google Circle retrofitted or not? If Apple find a spare orifice, you have no idea what they might be tempted to shove up there.